Good morning. Is this thing on? Okay, that's a little bit, <clears throat> a little better. Well, praise be to God for another beautiful day that he has given to us, opportunity for us to fellowship together here this morning. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we are thankful that you have chosen to worship here with us. My name is Brandon Reed, and I have the incredible privilege and honor of serving as one of the elders here with Christ's Covenant Fellowship. Listen, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please join me in John chapter 7. I'm going to be looking at John 7, verses 37 through 39. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, <clears throat> the English Standard Version. You know, there are times that I sit down to study a text, to prepare to preach a sermon, and I really have to plead with the Lord to beg him to show me how this text applies to our congregation, to those who will be present sitting under the teaching of the word. I have to work overtime in finding those applications, those correlations for those who will be present. But fortunately, as we look at the text before us today, that isn't the case. It wasn't very hard for me to find how this applies to all of us. This text before us this morning speaks to every human heart. It is pertinent to both the believer and the unbeliever. There's not a person in this room for whom this text is irrelevant. Let us read this together. I'll read for us the Word of God, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. And it reads, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let us pray. Father God, you are great and mighty. God alone, maker of heaven and earth, you alone are worthy of all the praise. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your written and revealed word. Father, I have a task before me that is really impossible for me to complete on my own as a sinful, fallible man to preach your word for your glory. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would rush upon me now, Lord, that your spirit would rest upon me, working in and through me to do what I cannot do on my own, to preach this text accurately, faithfully, yet boldly and courageously for the glory of Christ alone. Lord, would you open the ears and hearts of those who are under the teaching of your word this morning to receive whatever it is you have to say with, to us today. And would you be exalted amongst us through this time of studying your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This text is incredibly significant for us this morning because it engages a universal doctrine the idea of the unsatisfied 
soul. You see, this passage addresses an inherent desire that we all have, this consistent longing that resides within each of us, this need to be fulfilled. You see, as human beings, we go about our days uh, seeking to be satisfied, seeking to satisfy this yearning that's within each of us. We move from one thing to the next, hoping to find true and lasting contentment. 17th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal speaks to this reality of the human pursuit. And this is what he says, quote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves, end quote. I think what Mr. Pascal articulates here for us is true of the whole of humanity. You see, to a certain degree, we are all governed by our own desires, Every action, every decision, every step we take is to appeal to those desires. But see, here's the issue. We are never, ever satisfied. You see, we make the mistake of seeking eternal and lasting satisfaction through temporal circumstances. Hence the reason for our consistent discontentment and dissatisfaction. I think one of the ways this is most evident is probably in our children, right? You know, I recall going to the beach this past summer and, you know, we pack up, load up the car and we get there and I'm not going to name any names, but one of my children says, once we get to the beach, we're out on the beach having a great time, what else are we going to do? I'm like, what, what else are we going to do, bro? The beach is it. This is the attraction. What do you mean? What else is there? And I think that's just a great display of we are never, ever content. Now, as soon as I'm ready to indict my children for their discontentment, I'm immediately met with the reality of my own wandering heart. See, by the divine conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'm reminded that I, too, suffer from this universal con uh, condition of the unsatisfied soul. See, the concept of discontentment isn't something that's foreign to the Scriptures. In fact, the Word of God makes that yearning, this constant desire that's within each of us, it makes it comparable to a person that is thirsting for water. See, the longing that plagues the whole of humanity, it's urgent. It's like a person desperately seeking something to drink in the desert. And that brings us to our text for this morning and the divine and loving providence of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus not only addresses those that thirst, but he also presents a solution for your thirst or your longing. You see, Jesus offers himself as the means to true and lasting satisfaction. See, as we look at our text before us this morning, I have three headings, three points. So if you're taking notes, these will be our uh, working, our working framework, so to speak, for the way that we're going to approach this text this morning. And we see three things. Number one, we see a qualification. 
We see a qualification. Number two, we'll see an invitation. An invitation. And finally, number three, we see an explanation or transformation. You can kind of write both of those words down if you want. So a qualification, an invitation, and an explanation. And again, this is a text that is applicable for every person in this room, regardless of who you are, whether you're a believer, an unbeliever, maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years, maybe you know nothing about Jesus, this is your first time walking into a church service, this is applicable or fitting for all of us. This scripture speaks to every human heart. My prayer is that as we walk through this text together by God's divine mercy, you would respond to this glorious invitation that Jesus extends. My hope is to encourage everyone in this room to turn to this all-satisfying fountain of living water that is Christ Jesus. When you have these longings that arise, and trust me, you will, when your soul is crying out and you don't know where to turn, but you're searching for more, I encourage you to draw from his well. Let it be Jesus who satisfies your soul. With that in mind, with that goal, with that aim, with this framework, let's walk through these verses together. Now, number one, we have what we call the qualification so if you recall, our setting for chapter 7 is the city of Jerusalem, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 37 tells us that this is the last day of that feast. Now, this feast was a great celebration, one that lasted usually a week. So it was about a seven-day celebration, and it was instituted to commemorate Israel's journey through the wilderness and God's sovereign provision for his people as they journeyed during that time. Now, it's important to note the celebration was uh, known for two huge or very important traditions, uh, two ceremonies that took place at this festival. And first was the lamp lighting ceremony, and we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks and how that correlates to Jesus' statement in John chapter 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. But germane to our conversation this morning is the water drawing ceremony, the other ceremony that would take place at this great festival, this great feast. Now, in order for us to put all of this into the proper perspective, particularly Jesus' words, we must understand the significance of this ceremony and the significance of water, especially to the nation of Israel. Now, if you recall, the Lord had lovingly brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he promised to take them as a people for himself. And then he promises to bring them into this wonderful promised land where they would dwell and they would prosper. However, it would be quite a difficult journey for God's people, one that was marked by rebellion, one that was marked by grumbling. It was a very difficult journey for them to get to this promised land. If you recall, the Israelites, they weren't like us, right? They didn't have the luxury of just being able to have water whenever they desired. One of the difficulties for them as they traveled is they didn't have this consistent access to water, right? They couldn't just stop at the Dollar General and buy a couple of cases of bottled water to carry with them as they journeyed, right? Water was scarce in the land during that time. So this was a real threat to their survival. So as they're traveling, it's like, hey, we don't have any water. What are we going to do? 
But God, again, in his loving and sovereign providence, he provides water for them. There are several instances, if you read through the book of Exodus, where God provides water for them. Just a couple to look at. Exodus chapter 15, if you recall, they had come to a place called Marah, and there was actually water there, praise God, but they couldn't drink it because the water was bitter. And so Moses cries out to the Lord and says, what shall we drink? And the Lord shows Moses this log. He takes the log, throws it in the water, and the water becomes sweet, and the people are able to drink. Another story would be from Exodus 17, where the people stop to make camp. And here they begin to grumble and complain against Moses. Why did you bring us out of this land for us to just die here? As if it was Moses that actually brought them out of the land and not God. That's neither here nor there. Either, anyway, they complain. And God tells Moses to take his staff and strike the rock. And then water would come forth and the people can drink until they are satisfied. And of course, Moses in his obedience strikes the rock. The water flows forward. And the people are able to drink. So water had significance to the people for, because of God's provision for their fathers during their exodus. But not only that, there was this, a ritual significance of water. See, water was used for purifying or for cleansing individuals a lot of time before they would go into the temple to offer sacrifices or before they would go and enjoy these wonderful feasts and celebrations, they would have to cleanse themselves. So water took on ritual significance as well. So if we look at the Old Testament, water was a sign of prosperity, provision, and growth. It had great significance for the nation of Israel. So let's look a little bit at this water-drawing ceremony that takes place here at the Feast of Tabernacles. So each day of the feast, what would happen is the high priest would go and he would draw water from the pool of Shalom. And then it would be carried back to the temple in this procession. Well, then the priest in the procession, they would enter through the water gate and someone would sound the trumpet three times, marking the joy of this occasion. And then they would recite together the words of Isaiah 12, 3, which reads, with joy, you will draw from the well of salvation. So they would read that together as they're marching in, carrying this water. Then at the temple, the priests would march around the altar, and the temple choir would sing the words of Psalm 113 to 118. They would sing that together in unison. And then the priest would finally get to the altar, and he would pour out this water as an offering to God. So it was this massive ceremony that took place every day during this wonderful feast. And that's important to note because it is against that backdrop that Jesus speaks these words where he says, if anyone thirsts. Now, that's significant because Jesus' words are not wasted. He chooses them carefully for this time in this setting for a purpose. So I say all that to say, well, what is the qualification for the invitation that Jesus would extend? The only qualification is that you're thirsty and that you realize that you're thirsty. You see, the thirst that Jesus is alluding to here is not one of a physical nature. See, this speaks to the condition of the soul, the constant wandering of the human heart. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts. In other words, is there anyone who is unsatisfied? 
Is there anyone here who is disappointed with the direction of your life? Is there anyone here who's longing for more? As you go about your days, are you constantly pursuing one thing after another, hoping to find lasting contentment? Jesus says, are you thirsty? Is that you this morning? Brothers and sisters, I can admit that that's me. I know that this internal turmoil, it plagues me from time to time. There are moments in my own life where I have to battle these feelings that begin to rise within me. And I have to plead with the Lord to satisfy my wandering heart. I remember when I first got married, and this is something I may have never even shared with my wife. But, you know, getting married is a significant accomplishment. It's something that's wonderful. It's a wonderful moment in your life when you're joined together with another human being in this wonderful covenant. But I remember after getting married and we have our house and we already had children and everything's great. And I just remember feeling these feelings of anxiousness, like what's next? Like I got to do something else now. Like I've accomplished this. This is wonderful. This is great. What next? I remember standing on my porch in the house we lived in at the time when we first got married, and I remember just internally, my soul just crying out, Lord, you've got to satisfy me. I've got to be satisfied in you. It can't be my wife. It can't be my children. It can't be my job. It can't be the next thing. God, it's got to be you. And as I stand here and share that story with you this morning, I know I'm not alone. Has anybody else in here battled those feelings? Has anybody else's heart wander? Is anybody else's soul thirsty? You see, it's in the backdrop of this Feast of Tabernacles against this beautiful water ceremony that Jesus stands up in the middle of this group of individuals and he says something so incredibly fitting. In fact, his words are divinely appointed for this time. You see, this is the last day of the feast, and this was a huge celebration. This was the largest of the three uh, Jewish feasts, so this was the most popular. And this is the last day of the feast. Now, I want you to consider the people's mindset here, right? This is something they've waited for all year. They've planned, they've celebrated for this whole week and had a blast, and now it's the last day, and it's all over. Now what? Now what are we going to do? This feast, the party's over. Like some of you may feel that this evening when the Super Bowl's done. Man, the season's over, now what? Now what are we going to do? There's no more football. What now? See, Jesus knows their souls are crying out. He knows they desperately need to have their thirst quenched by something more. And again, the reality is that we all suffer from this thirst, whether we realize it or not. We all have this struggle within us. We're consistently striving for contentment. See, the only difference is the way that it manifests itself for each individual. For some of us, it's relationships. Maybe that's you in here this morning. Maybe you're seeking lasting satisfaction in the people around you, and you can't figure out why you keep going from relationship to relationship, and you're forever disappointed. Maybe it's 
drugs or alcohol. Maybe when those longings arise, you turn to substances to, to fulfill you, to satisfy you. Maybe for some people in here, it's accomplishments. Maybe you're a student and it's academic accomplishments. Maybe you're an athlete and you play ball or you run track or whatever it is you do. And for you, that's your thing. That's what you look to, to eternally satisfy your soul. And you can't figure out why it's never, ever enough. Maybe it's your career, your vocation. Maybe you're always looking for the next big opportunity, the next great endeavor, and you f figure out, man, if I can just get this next thing, it'll satisfy me for the rest of my days. But whoever you are, maybe whatever it is for you, every time it's the same, it's never, ever enough. See, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to this reality, speaks to the reason that we're never satisfied no matter what we receive. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it's appropriate in, dressing, in addressing this reality of the human condition, and it says this. These are the words of the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. It says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen to what God is telling us here. He says, not only have you turned from me, the only fountain of living water, but now you're turning elsewhere, seeking to be satisfied. It's not going to work. And he uses the imagery of a broken cistern. If you don't know what a cistern is, it was an apparatus they used back in the day to store and transport water. Now, I want you to imagine trying to carry water with a bucket with a giant crack in it. How incredibly frustrating that must be. You're thirsty. Your family's thirsty. You go to the river. You fill your bucket. And as you're walking along, the water's just sloshing out everywhere because it's got a giant crack in the bucket. How incredibly frustrating and foolish. But that's what we do when we turn elsewhere besides the Lord Jesus for eternal satisfaction. That is what we do. It's what we do when we turn elsewhere seeking to satisfy the longing of our souls. Brothers and sisters, we must realize that we are all thirsty. And that is the only qualification necessary for turning to Christ, is acknowledging your need. We must first acknowledge we are thirsty, needy sinners. And even in that, we still will have longings. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But when we're faced with this reality of our thirst, man, praise God that he's offered us an eternal solution. And this is where we move to our second portion of this discussion is the invitation. So we move from the qualification now to the invitation. So after Jesus presents this simple qualification here. Jesus points, uh, points forward to this beautiful invitation now. He says, if anyone thirsts, what? Let him come to me and drink. This is an invitation to all people. Listen, if you are thirsty and you realize that your soul is needy and that nothing in the world will do, Jesus says, come to me and drink. This is a beautiful gospel invitation this is a clear call for all people to turn to the Lord Jesus. 
This is really reminiscent of one of my favorite passages that comes from Isaiah chapter 55. Listen, if you have your Bible with you, turn with me there quickly if you don't mind. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 55. And I'm just going to look at the first two verses. See what Jesus says is very reminiscent of this. He may even have this in mind as he's speaking to this group of people. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 and 2. And this is what it says. It says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So here the prophet Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel under the divine inspiration of the Lord, inviting them to turn to God. You see, and this invitation is beautiful because it has no limitations. It is graciously extended to all people. Notice what the text says here. You see, the Lord invites those with and without money. Why is this significant? Because we all fit into one of these two categories. That encompasses everybody in humanity. You see, what we just established that everyone is thirsty and that Jesus understands this. And he's pointing to the reality that plagues us all. See, here's the difference. See, there are some people who acknowledge our need and our longings. There are some people who are very aware of that, but they have the earthly means to seek the next thing, right? I want you to think about the guy who's in a midlife crisis, right? But he's pretty well off financially, so he can go buy the drop-top Mercedes, he can kick his wife to the curb and go get a younger one because he's financially stable. Maybe he's a good-looking guy, right? He can go on and move to the next thing. That's the guy who's spending his money on things that don't satisfy. That's the guy that's got the means to seek and achieve and move to the next thing. But then see here, the Lord's Word describes another individual, the ones that come without money. This will be a person who may acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy and they understand they're empty-handed. Like, I have no means to seek anything else. I don't know what else to do. I don't have anywhere else to turn. See, again, that's every person on this planet. That describes all of us. In reality, this is how we all must come before the Lord is acknowledging our need. We must come before him empty-handed as the beggar who's seeking bread, as the one in the desert who is thirsty, right? We have nothing to offer the Lord except ourselves. Empty-handed, we must come before him. But I love this passage of Scripture. I love Isaiah 55. It's one of the clearest calls to salvation that you'll find in the Old Testament. And here the Lord in his mercy is inviting his people, whoever will acknowledge him, whoever acknowledges their thirst, to turn to him and have their needs satisfied. And then look at what he offers. If we look at the text, it's not just any type of provision. What is he offering? He's offering rich food that delights. Something that is, this is a, a significant of it or uh, resembles an eternal banquet. This isn't something that's going to come and go. What he's offering here will satisfy your soul completely because he's offering himself. Turn to me. 
Have your thirst quenched. Have your soul satisfied. See, when Jesus invites uh, us to come, that's a directive. When he says, come to me and drink, again, that is a directive. That's significant for us. He says, come, but then I want you to look at something else. If we go back to John chapter 7, not only does he say, come, he says, come and drink. Friends, that is important. See, some people come to Jesus, but they never drink. And I'll show you a text that supports that. I want you to think about the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus, even offers him reverence. He bows, he kneels before Jesus. And he has this conversation about inheriting eternal life and what must I do? And then Jesus tells him, look, sell all your possessions and follow me. And then it says the man went away sorrowful. He was grieved. See, he had come to Jesus, but he didn't drink. And it was ultimately revealed that what he was seeking to satisfy the longing in him was his possessions. He came before Jesus, but he never drank. See, the Lord Jesus here is inviting us to come and drink. See, Jesus says, if you thirst, come to me and drink. He says, are you longing for more? Look no further. I am the answer to the unsatisfied soul. All of the desires of your heart, every longing, every craving, every move toward contentment and satisfaction finds its true and lasting fulfillment in Jesus. You see, just as the fathers of the nation of Israel drank until they were satisfied as God provided for them in the wilderness, for those that come to Christ and drink, God has provided for us a fountain that never runs dry in Jesus Christ. You see, the deepest of wells, the clearest and most refreshing of springs, they all pale in comparison to Christ Jesus. He is what resolves the dilemma of the soul. Amen, somebody. Does anybody believe that this morning? Drink from the wellspring of salvation that is Jesus. He is simply inviting you to come and drink until you are satisfied. Now, the next question that you may be asking yourself is, well, what does it mean to drink? How do I drink from this fountain? How do we come and drink to Christ? So verse 38 gives us a little bit of insight into what Jesus means here. Verse 38 says, whoever believes in me. Now, let's stop there for a moment. See, Jesus stands up in this gathering and amongst his own people, and he invites them to believe in him. See, this is not a call to simply believe in his teachings or his miracles, but to believe in him as the Savior and the Son of God sent to rescue the lost to believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, the life, the only means by which a person can be saved and restored to God. Friends, if we are to drink from the well that is Christ, we must recognize our need, turn from our sins, and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior above all others. That is how we drink from the fountain of living water, by believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God, the one who's come to redeem humanity. Believe on Jesus. That is how we drink from that fountain. 
We simply believe in him, look to him in faith, and trust him as this gracious, loving Savior. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity to do so right now, today. You see, the invitation that Jesus offered was not exclusive to the nation of Israel. It is graciously extended to all who thirst. Listen, if you're sitting in your chair right now and the Lord is doing something, and you feel like you're starting to, you have this thirst and this longing and this desire in you and you're starting to understand that. Maybe you're really confronted with all of these things for the very first time and all of the dissatisfaction and the discontentment you feel. Maybe this happening to you for the very first time. You're hearing this wonderful, glorious invitation. If that's you, praise God. Don't leave here the same way that you came in. You have an opportunity to drink until you are satisfied. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you've never tasted of the goodness of God and the all-satisfying glory of Christ. It's natural that you would look to the, the things of this world to satisfy your desires. You don't have a reference point. However, when I opened this sermon, I said this text was relevant for every person in this room. So I don't want you to miss this, brothers and sisters. When we look to Christ in faith, we still suffer from discontentment too. Even when we accept this invitation, even when we've been changed by Christ and surrendered to him as Lord and Savior, that doesn't mean you'll never, ever be discontent again. Listen, if you're in this room and you're a believer and you're sitting in your chair and you're saying, listen, I hear all that you're saying, but I'm still wrestling with these feelings daily. I've turned to Christ and I've trusted him. Why am I still feeling this way? I want you to consider the woman at the well. Back in John chapter 4, Jesus has this incredible conversation with this woman and he tells her if she drinks, from this living water, she'll never thirst again. Listen, I want you to understand something. Jesus isn't saying that you'll never, ever have any feelings of discontentment ever again. He's just saying you don't need to turn anywhere else to have them satisfied. That he is the one. He is the way. He is all you need. So brothers and sisters, it's okay if you're still feeling those, those feelings of discontentment. And we'll talk about this in just a minute when we get to this last point. As the Spirit resides in you, that, those are the uh, rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit, Christ giving you his Spirit, imparting his Spirit to believers so that in those moments you turn to him. We don't need to go anywhere else. Brothers and sisters, we must be a people who go to the well and drink again and again and again. And when we do, praise God, Jesus explains for us this wonderful transformation that happens. And that moves me to my third and final point, the explanation. Let's look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet 
glorified. So Jesus says that those who believe in him, that those who come to him and drink, he says something miraculous happens. He says, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, think of the imagery that Jesus is using here and how incredibly fitting it is for this setting. Now, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, important to note here, now it isn't clear what scripture Jesus is referencing. Uh, you have to consider at the time, all they had was the Old Testament, but Jesus doesn't specify. He just says, as the scriptures have said. Now, the Old Testament is full of a lot of wonderful passages that link salvation and the spirit and water, and they point to, uh, forward to Christ, right, that we're able to see now because we have the New Testament, but we're not exactly sure which scripture Jesus is referring to. But I think of a passage like Isaiah 58, 11, and it says this, and the Lord will guide you continuously and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now, there are other passages that we could point to. Um, I won't give you them all here. If you want some more, you can find me afterwards. I'd be more than happy to give you a list. I don't think it's necessarily important for us to know the exact text that Jesus was referring to in order for us to understand his point, especially when you consider that Jesus has said that the scriptures testify and bear witness to him. The scriptures are bearing witness about Jesus. So then what does Jesus mean when he says that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess what Jesus is saying because we get an explanation. This is wonderful. Sometimes the Bible can be difficult to understand. Amen? But praise God, I love it when the Bible explains itself. And here we have an explanation. Verse 39 says, he said this about the Spirit. So this is the river of living water that flows out of a person's heart. What is it? It is the work of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is pointing to this glorious transformation that happens to those who believe in him. See, believers experience what we'll call a heart transplant, if you will. See, the prophet Ezekiel even points to this in the Old Testament where God says, I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So when Jesus talks about these rivers of living water that flow from our hearts, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and how it changes a person internally in a way that it flows out externally. See, the internal transformation leads to an external manifestation. I want to say that again. The internal transformation leads to an external manifestation. See, Jesus is saying when the Spirit resides in you, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, that means the work that God is doing in us will overflow in our lives. It's going to be apparent to see, not just in our lives, but in the way that we relate to other people as well. See, again, Jesus told the woman at the well that the living water that he provides, he says, if you drink of this water, he said it will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this means that the, the living water or the spirit is continuously and actively at work within us. Praise God, because I know I need that. Every day. Every day. 
See, listen, there are just times in our lives, however, where we're more dependent on the Spirit than others. Sometimes when we feel this great burden of ministering to our families, or we're overwhelmed by the busyness of life or the longings and the desires that live within us, and sometimes we're just so overcome that we don't know how we're going to keep going. We have no idea how we're going to continue to give of ourselves. Jesus says what? He says, come to me and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. See, brothers and sisters, we're able to continue pouring out because Jesus is consistently pouring in. The Holy Spirit is consistently at work in us. I want you to notice the language that Jesus uses here. He says rivers, plural, not one river. He says rivers of living water. Again, this points to the abundant and ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. See, this isn't a one-time event, but it's a daily occurrence for the Christian. Again, praise God for that reality. I know I need that work in my life every single day. Amen? So we look at verse 39, Jesus was referring to the Spirit, and it says, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, it's important to note that this uh, does not mean the Spirit was not in existence prior to this time, okay? This does not mean the Spirit wasn't actively at work. You see, up until this point, the Spirit had not been given in full. See, this is pointing to the promised coming of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus will allude to this as we continue our study in the book of John. We'll see this in John 14, 15, and 16. John, uh, Jesus makes references to this helper that is to come, and he says when he comes and reveals the Spirit of truth, he'll reveal all things to you. Well, that helper, that he that Jesus refers to is the Holy Spirit that would eventually come. And obviously, when we read the book of Acts, we know at Pentecost, the Spirit comes and it's poured out on those believers. This is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. That promise is fulfilled. The Spirit would eventually come. Listen, for brothers and sisters who are in Christ, this is a reality for us, that the Spirit dwells within each of us. Paul the Apostle Paul writes to emphasize this truth. He says in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul emphasizes the truth by stating it negatively, right? By saying, in other words, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not in Christ. Or if you're in Christ, you would have the Spirit. Right? But this is not just exclusive to the New Testament. Even the Old Testament alludes to the reality of the coming of the Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 27. And it says this, And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, the Spirit of God is not a New Testament concept. The Spirit has always been at work throughout redemptive history. There's no way for a person to be saved, to acknowledge God, right? To submit to his will, to be uh, set apart for service, apart from the Spirit of God working. If you read the Old Testament story of Israel, the Spirit uh, resided, God's Spirit resided with the Israelites. 
He descended and his spirit rested upon them. In fact, that's what made them unique to the rest of the nations, that God's spirit was with them. But this text is pointing us to the coming of the Holy Spirit and how it resides in believers and will continuously be at work. You see, King David even writes about the Spirit of God in Psalm 51:11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit anointed kings and anointed prophets. God's Spirit was at work speaking through his prophets. Spirit guided the nation of Israel, descended in their midst, and was actively at work accomplishing the will of the Lord. But you see, as the Spirit dwelled with the people of God, now the Spirit dwells in the people of God. These are the rivers of living water that flow out of a man's heart when he's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and come to the fountain of living water that is Christ Jesus. What an incredible reality that is. See, as we close our time here together this morning, I'd really be naive to believe that this is a reality for everyone in this room. I know not everyone has come. I know not everyone has drank from the fountain of living water. I think I'm right in, in assuming that there are people in this room this morning that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe that's you. Maybe you, where you're sitting in your chair, you can say, yeah, I know that's me. I haven't come to know Jesus, but I am indeed plagued by this universal condition. My soul is unsatisfied. I know I'm wandering. I know I'm constantly longing and I'm constantly unfulfilled. Well, to that individual, if you are in this room, I invite you today. In fact, Jesus invites you today to drink from his fountain the well that never runs dry, where you can come and be eternally satisfied, where you can turn to him time and time again. Whosoever will, let him come. But to my brothers and sisters, to, to the church, listen, one of the outworkings of the Holy Spirit is evangelism. See, it's telling others about this glorious Savior that is Jesus Christ. So to my brothers and sisters in the room that are in Christ, we should be compelled to invite others to come and drink from this fountain. We remember that surrounding us are millions of people who are lost, who are wandering aimlessly through the desert searching for something to drink, and we have the answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Are you compelled to share that truth with the people around you? But I would also be remiss if I didn't remind my brothers and sisters in this room to not neglect your own need to drink, to wake up every morning and to drink from the fountain of Christ. Throughout your day, go back to that fountain and drink again. Before you lay down at night, go back to that fountain and drink again. When you rise in the morning, drink from him all over again. He is eternally glorious and forever satisfies the human soul. You know, David writes in Psalm 63.1, and this is where we'll end our time. 
King David, who was a man who was familiar with God's providence in his life. And he writes in Psalm 63.1, and he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Brothers and sisters, do we desire God that way? Would we be a people who consistently pursue him in this manner, who consistently drink from the fountain of living water and encourage others to do the same? Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. Lord, we could never even put into words how majestic, how glorious, how holy, how splendid you truly are. Lord, we are sinful human beings who consistently turn elsewhere to have our satisfaction met, to have our longings met, to have these desires satisfied. We neglect you the fountain of living water, time and time again. But Jesus, we thank you that you invite us to come to you and drink. That any man or woman who acknowledges their need, who understands their thirst and lays aside their sin and rebellion and turns to you can drink and be forever satisfied. Thank you for that glorious invitation. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy extended to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to understand that we were created for something more. It's not anything that the world can give to us, but we were created for a relationship with you. Lord, help us to seek you first, as David writes, to thirst for you as one does for water in the desert. Lord, help us to seek you that way. Lord, I pray for everyone in here this morning, for the unbeliever, those who have never tasted of your goodness, Lord, that you would stir their hearts right now, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place to help them see Jesus for the very first time to turn to him. And Father, I pray for all of us in here who call ourselves Christians, who have been born again by the power of the Spirit, that we would be reminded of our own need and that each day we would consistently look to you to satisfy our souls. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.